This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. I'm Becky Parker-Geist, and I'm your host. Audiobook Connection is your place to learn about the audiobook creative process in discussions between the authors, narrators, producers, and post-production teams that bring them all together, as well as guests who have listened to the audiobooks and have questions for the creative teams. This podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being with me today. I am really excited to have with me Michael Reeves. He is an audio engineer for over 25 years. Mike was an A-list mix engineer in New York City, working in acclaimed recording studios, including Electric Lady, Sony Studios, Hit Factory, Unique Recording Studios, Quad, Power Station, Avatar, and others. He produced hit records for artists including Mary J. Blige, Jessica Simpson, Boys to Men, Wu-Tang Clan, Brian McKnight, The Temptations, Metallica, Bon Jovi, Tariq and Guns, Kansas 702, the list goes on and on, and including Queen Latifah and scores of others. He's garnered two Grammy Awards and 23 platinum albums and he remains a voting Grammys member. Mike also designed and taught advanced engineering courses at the world's largest media college, Full Sail University. He's now focusing on producing audiobooks for Pro Audio Voices, as well as Audible, Findaway Voices, and more. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Thanks for having me, Becky. Glad to be here. I thought that talking about mastering would be a really great topic for us because well, first of all, Mike is working with Pro Audio Voices in several capacities as a narrator, as an audio engineer, as a part of our mastering team. And we've gotten to know each other pretty well over these last few years. So again, I want to come back to this topic of mastering. I know that when I got started as a narrator, you know, a few decades ago, we won't go into uh, exactly when that was, but <laughs> when I got started, I had no clue, really, what mastering even meant. And I know from my work with many authors that most authors, it's not their world, you know, and so they don't also don't really have a concept of either what it is or what it means in terms of their audio files. So let's start off, if you could just give us kind of a definition for what mastering is. Ah, uh, the dark arts. <laughs> remains a mystery to a lot in the engineering world of what it, as well. It is its own discipline. And the primary purpose for mastering in, in any discipline is to obtain some sort of uniformity for all the different files or in the old days, tape tracks that are being produced so that 
things that were recorded in one studio on one day and then another studio on another day won't sound like they were recorded differently to the listener. But music or audio, narration, the whole idea is to make it sound seamless. Like the whole thing was just sat down and recorded. Some of these music albums that we listened to were recorded over months and, and some of the professional audio books as well recorded in many different studios around the world in later days when it's possible to do so. And so the idea for, for mastering is how can we just make the listener go, yep, this was all just recorded at one time. So right. it's about conformity and, and sort of consistency. Yeah. And, and of course, that's so important for the listener experience because, you know, we have when we're having a story play to us, typically, you know, through headphones or earbuds or something. So it's very intimate. It's right in our heads. And to, you know, we want to experience it with that kind of consistent flow and not sort of this disjointed, oh, that sounds different now for some reason. You know, sometimes it can be subtle, but there, those little jumps can be distracting. Well, and especially with the advent of, of earbuds, the way most people consume audiobooks, especially, it is right in your ear. It's like somebody speaking directly in your ear. So it doesn't take much nuance in tone, volume, or background sounds or anything for you to notice. And it's also interesting to note that it's, it's easier to fool the eye than it is to fool the ear. Right. Our eyes are visually fooled every time we watch a movie, for example, it's just a bunch of still photos that move at 24 frames per second. We perceive that as fluid motion, and, it, and it's not. Audio is recorded usually either 29 or 30 frames per second, but it is just the slightest difference of a few milliseconds, and we begin perceiving that as a chorus effect or a flange or even reverb or, or a little bit longer as delay. Yeah. So it's very difficult to fool the ears with something. Yeah. You know, I think that's such a great point. And I think that we can also recognize that that is very true with like voice recognition systems. Like our each of us has a voice pattern that is unique to us, you know. Yeah, just that that our, our ears are very sensitive to those kinds of changes. So let's get into some of the nitty gritty of what it means to master audio. And what are the things that become factors in that and how we can affect that mastering process. So I thought we'd start with the studios themselves. So each narrator, whether that's an author narrator or a professional narrator working in a studio or working in a home studio, the studio itself is going to impact the sound, right? So you want to talk to us a little bit about that element of the studio, like what are those things about the studio that are going to make differences in the mastering? Well, the studio is a controlled environment. That's the whole reason for going into a studio to begin with is because you can control what the microphones pick up. Well, you're supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> to some degree. As a home studio that's listening to this, will be laughing hysterically at this moment because, as we all know, it's lawnmower day somewhere. Right. <laughs> Those leaf blowers. <laughs> Very difficult to make anything soundproof. Uh, but more importantly than being soundproof and blocking out external sounds, 
is making sure that there's no reflections in the room so that you have a, a relatively dead space. It shouldn't be an anochetic uh, chamber. I mean, it shouldn't be no reflections, but we want to control the reflections. So if you have somebody that's recording in a room like, like mine here, which I, I, I wouldn't do, but you see sheetrock behind me, that's going to be very reflective versus your environment that I'm looking at now where you have tapestries behind you. It's going to be a lot harder to reflect. And then, of course, there you go. You have you got foam, too. Yeah. <laughs> behind that. The whole reason for this is to make the files as uniform as possible at their conception, at, at their creation, so that everybody's right. kind of at the same place. And then it kind of goes downhill from there in the audio, in the, well, in the audio book world. As you and I have discussed several times, it, it becomes problematic then when different narrators, for example, uh, change the sound from the raw tracks that are just being recorded and begin enhancing them with things that should be later down the production line. Right. The whole idea for the recording part in the studios is to get the highest level of signal to the lowest ratio of noise. That's in a nutshell. That's what you want. You want it, the, the hottest signal you can get without picking up external noise. Right. Right. Which actually leads us very nicely into that next element where we're talking about the levels that are set for the microphone. Now, of course, the microphone itself is going to be an issue. And Absolutely. just to sort of, in most cases, once a booth is set up, you're not going to be changing mics. But just to call it to awareness that if you were to change the microphone in the middle of a recording, tell us how that might impact this sound. Well, that's going to throw a curveball to the engineer which is why in professional studios, it's never done. When a voice actor or a musician comes in the studio, it's written down in the studio documentation which mic that they use. In fact, we actually don't just say, oh, it's this brand of microphone and it's this model number. We actually write the serial number of the microphone down. So in case it's a rental or something that was borrowed from another studio, from their light, uh, mic locker, we can get the exact studio that was used because some of these productions can go on depending on scheduling and whatnot, especially as you get into the high end of, of audiobook production. This can go on for, for months. And it's very important to try to get as close to the same mic as possible. Right. Yeah. And I bring it up partly because, it, you know, it's not something that I would expect a professional narrator, you know, that they would know not to do that. But I've certainly talked with authors who have uh, started to narrate their own book and maybe they started with, you know, some podcasting plug in USB mic or something. And then they decide partway through they're going to upgrade to a better mic without realizing that it's a mistake to, well, it's not a mistake to replace the mic, but they need to recognize that it's going to mean they need to start over again. So just or to clarify that. If it's unavoidable, as can happen, it will make it a, a much greater challenge to overcome. Right. Be overcome, but it's very, it, it makes it that much more difficult. What we try to do is to minimize all the different obstacles that we can get thrown at us in the middle of a production by trying to, to implement these kind of standards as far as using uh, the same microphone, 
uh, it's a common practice to mark exactly on the on the floor the spot that you're standing in when you're or you're sitting in mm-hmm. when you record. For example, you can mark that off with you know um, gaff tape or console tape or whatever, and the distance to the microphone as well. This is something that we want to measure and see. Okay, how far is is our subject from the microphone? So we can write it down in our documentation or in our session documentation, so that we know in the in the in the commercial world, it may not be the same engineer working on the project. It could be a different engineer, especially if it's in a different studio. So that engineer would need to know, okay, I need to put this person uh, six inches away from the microphone. It's a Sony C, uh, CS800. It, here's the model number. It's, we got the exact same microphone or as close to it as we can get. And they'll record also, if I record, I mean, write down the signal chain that was used as well. Right. Yeah. And this is a point I want to just reemphasize for our author narrators that the distance from the mic makes a huge, huge difference. And just as an example, I'm going to change the distance that I am from my mic right now, just to give you, you know, our listeners some idea of how that might impact things. So if I move away from my mic, you know, I'm just leaned back, I'm not that far away. Uh, or not that much farther away. Or if I'm off to the sides over here and talking, because I've leaned over to see something, but I'm still narrating. And then I come back here to my usual place in front of the mic. That kind of variation, we really are going to notice that. So being able, as a narrator, being able to have a kind of consistent relationship to the microphone is so important. Because not only did your distance change, which caused the volume to drop significantly, you might think if you're if you're new to this or just experienced it for the first time, well, I'll just turn it up there. But when you do that, you'll see that, well, you're also turning up all the background noise that you might not have even noticed before. And now it's noticeable and it'll be noticeable to the listener. And then when you go off axis to the microphone, we experience something called the proximity effect. So the more you get off axis to the microphone, the more that the low end is not picked up as much. And so mm-hmm. that changes the tone of, of the mic. If, the, uh, if our listeners rewind this a bit and listen to your experiment again, they'll notice not only the drop in volume as you went back, but when you went to the side, it got very high-pitched, tenny, trebly. Mm-hmm. And so that would also not just, well, we got to put the volume up, but now we got to change the EQ as well. So, yeah, right. my position is, is everything. Yeah. Position is as important to what we do. And, I, and when I say we, I mean we as audiobook producers and, and narrators and authors and the, the whole community. It's as important as uh, where is the camera to a photographer? Because the microphone is a sonic camera. The microphone is our camera in the studio that we can use to capture what the, what the artist is doing and take it to, to the people that weren't there to see it. So think of it like a camera. And if you move, if you're taking pictures and all of a sudden you back up or you move or you change position, how is that going to affect your picture? It's the same thing. Right. That's a great way to explain it. Because I think you know, everybody has the experience with cameras, with our cell phones or whatever. But 
not everyone has that kind of same kind of immediate recognition of how a microphone relationship is impacted. So that's great. There are different classifications of microphones, not just by manufacturer and model number, but as you know, I'm speaking on a dynamic, what's called a dynamic mic. It's a handheld mic. It's built. You see these kind of microphones if you go to a club or a bar or a concert or something, you see the artist on stage, whether they're singing or speaking to it. They, they take a lot of what's called SPL, sound pressure level. They're built for very high volume mm-hmm. environments. And the microphone that you're speaking uh, on is, can't really tell. It's a condenser. Yeah, it's a condenser. Yeah. These are much more delicate. They are much more sensitive because of the way they're constructed much more sensitive to slight variances in sound. They'll pick that up much easier than these. That's why they, you know, they use these in an ACD concert. And, you know, the one you're using is more a studio mic. You don't see too many condenser mics. Right. Yeah. Great. Let's take a short pause. We'll be right back to talk about setting levels in the recording studio. There is nothing like a great book to transport you to new worlds. Here at Pro Audio Voices, we love working on projects that transport the listener. We pay attention to the details, like making sure we have actors that can clearly differentiate the character voices, making for a great listening experience. If you have a book that you would like to get into audio, and you're looking for a team with a personalized approach, Pro Audio Voices might be just the right fit. Come visit us at ProAudioVoices.com. And we're back. As a, a narrator, I'll just, I'm going to use the term narrator to, you know, encompass both professional and author narrators. We're all taking on that task as a part of the process of, you know, creating an audiobook. So, when the narrator's in their studio and they're trying to set their levels, what I'm hearing you say is that we want to have the highest sound of voice as we can while still staying in the, you know, in the not peaking range so that we can keep the rest of the background noise at a minimum. That's correct. So when we come to multi-voice projects, now that can be, so we're sort of moving into a you know, you've brought them up, but we're moving into a, a that territory a little bit more fully when that could be two different voices, two narrators in two different studios, and that we're combining the audio into one. Or it could be the more complex kind of work that we love doing here at Pro Audio Voices with full cast, where we have many different actors in many different studios and bringing those together into scene work where there's interaction so it really needs to sound like they're all in the same space. Talk to us a little bit about what some of those challenges are and how we start to overcome some of those as we work on these kinds of projects. Those are those are the most challenging because of all the different environments. However, they're also the most like what you see in professional music production. So there's there's a pathway here. There's a precedent. There's a there's a protocol, and it's very difficult, I think, initially to get this out. But what we strive for in these kinds of productions is for the artist and the whoever's recording them, whether they're recording themselves or they have somebody else doing it, 
to add the least amount of everything so that all of that can be added in later and it can be added on at the same rate, the same levels at this, you know, hopefully by the same equipment. So when we say we like raw tracks, that just means a great signal to noise ratio, a good level against that background noise. And then that's it. That's really all we, we need to get recorded in these multi-track sessions or multi, multi-voice sessions uh, because those are all going to have to be kind of, the word escapes me here, but they're going to have to be made more uniform or consistent by a mastering engineer. And the more that's added to that track when it's being recorded in, in terms of EQ or, God forbid, uh, effects of some sort or ambience, uh, reverb, any of these things, once it's there, it's there. You can't undo it. So if there's nothing there, then you can say, okay, well, these tracks from this studio are a little more dull than this one. Well, that's easy. We can add a little high end to the dull tracks. Mm-hmm. But if they've been altered already, then it makes it very difficult. Right. And just so that our listeners are clear on what we're talking about when we say, you know, don't add anything. We just want the raw. So that adding is when somebody, an engineer, a narrator, adds in, or even if your audio software has some, has it set to automatically add in something, these kinds of plugins or effects are what we're talking about the EQ, the, you know, reverb, whatever you, th- you might add that you think is going to make your sound better, but it's only sounding better to your ears in that moment. And it, it's so important when you're doing a multi-voice project to let it sound the way it sounds so that the mastering team can do their work most effectively. So spot on. I, I couldn't have said that better. We have a tendency because it just it doesn't sound good enough. People have a tendency to compare it to what they hear when they go on Audible or when they go on the Pro Audio Voices website or, you know, open up their own audiobook library and they go, well, that just sounds so amateurish, really, compared to, well, it's supposed to. That's a finished product versus, you know, think about when they pour the steel for your car versus when they put the wax on in the showroom and you Right. Just not at that level of production. It's not down the production line that far. So we must resist this temptation <laughs> to add these. And, and some of the favorites, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit as far as the plugins go, but some of the favorites that, that we as, as narrators and producers love to add in, in include obviously the equalization um, but compressors and limiters and uh, all kind of fill. Some people don't understand filters are the same as equalizers. It's just a different way of equalizing. But it's like, oh, I didn't add an EQ. I just put a filter on there. That's equalization. It's just applied differently. So those things that we put on our, our microphones and our studios, you're right when you say it, it sounds best to you in that moment right there. But that's not the moment that the audiobook is going to reach its final destination. It's going to add many other components way on down the production line someplace. So yeah, we just have to 
be mindful yeah. of that yeah. and, and try our best just to get a good, really hot recording without distortion, because that's the other thing. We want it good and loud, but if it distorts, if it clips, then it's done. Yeah. You can't undo that either. In the old days, when we went to tape, you could. Uh, in fact, mm. sometimes the, the, the tape distortion was actually kind of pleasant, um, especially on things like guitars and rock vocals. It was nice. It was a nice addition to add a little warmth and grit to a recording. We don't want that in an audiobook. We don't need grit right going into your ear. Right. somebody trying to just tell a story and it can happen at the just the most inconvenient times when the character in the book is yelling or running or sometimes when they're being very quiet and it's very intimate and you know I, I, just to go back on something you said a minute ago it, it's a the proximity to the microphone is is important we can use that to our advantage as well because often when we're trying to express an emotion it's really beneficial yeah. for a more experienced narrator to be able to, because you can't scream into a microphone just because the character is right. yelling. You can't yell into the microphone. It'll distort it. And it, it sounds, when you try to do a fake yell, it sounds fake. So right. we can use right. that distance to the microphone to kind of help fool the listener into, you know, suspending disbelief a moment into thinking, yeah, that's right. The, that character voice just got down in my ear and whispered something or yeah. yelled something to somebody going out. The so the, the mic distance is, is really all the narrator needs to worry about. Yeah, that's great. Let's take another brief pause. When we're back, we'll talk a little bit more about audio plugins and then also about audiobooks with music and sound effects and how those are mastered. Do you have a book that you imagine with multiple voices or a screenplay or stage play? At Pro Audio Voices, we love working on these more complex productions with music and sound effects and a full cast of voices. Bringing together decades of experience in both theater and audio production, our team brings your project to life. From manuscript preparation to casting to directing the actors, and a post-production team to bring it all together, Pro Audio Voices brings your project to life. Learn more at proaudiovoices.com forward slash full dash cast. And we're back. Since we've been talking about plugins and filters, there's one other that I know that comes up a fair amount, and it, it comes up when narrators are worried that that background noise, that noise floor, is too high. And so they'll sometimes use gating. You want to talk about that? Here's the problem with gates. And I, I would preach this to my music uh, engineers and people trying to record music at home as well. Gating seems like it would be a great idea. And, and it can be. But the problem with gating, especially when it comes to something that's being played back, you know, right into your headphones, right into your ears, is that when we don't notice this, but when you start listening for it, you will. And the listener will notice it even if they don't know they notice it. So when the gate's closed, you don't hear any of the background noise. You don't hear anything. It's dead silence. That's great. But as soon as you start to speak, the gate opens. And now whatever's in the background is also being heard by the microphone. Remember, we just put something else in front of the camera. But in the background, 
but the camera lens sees it. It's there and there's no taking it out. And then the gate closes again. Over time, this becomes almost annoying because it's like, well, we don't really know that we're hearing these background sounds, but we are, we're perceiving them. And they're going right into our brains because we've got these earbuds sticking in our ears. And so when the narrator's not speaking, nothing's there. And sometimes we can't even tell, what is that? It could just be ambience. It could be actual fan noise, like I've got going on back here, or, or you know, some overfly, you know, a plane flying over that we didn't really notice and didn't think the microphone would pick up. But the gating can actually call attention to the very thing that we're trying to get at. One of the one of the yeah. most common uses of gating in, in, in music production is in drums, because there's so many microphones on drums. And they, well, I just want to pick up the, the, the rack toms. And, uh, you know, so that's great. Those microphones are off. And then the drummer goes and does a fill. When he does a fill, all of a sudden, there's stuff there that wasn't there a minute ago. We're, we're amateurs. We're just listeners. We don't know what it is, but we notice something's different. Right, right. Gating should probably never be used, really. It's certainly not in the recording process. Right, yeah. In, in post-production, there may be something we can't deal with in any other way. We might need to, to try to gate it out or, or to use. I, I'm a bigger fan of, of something called an expander, uh, which is basically the opposite of what a compressor does. A compressor makes loud things soft and soft things loud. An expander does the opposite of that. It makes loud things even louder and soft things even softer. And so the expander is, 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 better, is a better choice for this type of production, but should never be used in the, in the production, in the, in the recording process. Right, yeah. It makes me think with the camera comparison, it makes me think of the zoom backgrounds, you know, with if you have a green screen or if you don't, but using one of those um, virtual backgrounds and how that sometimes they'll flicker in and out and how, you know, <laughs> it can be more annoying, you know, watching the edges of somebody disappear and reappear. <laughs> so it's more calling attention to itself than a- hiding the background. So there's just one more area that I thought we might cover with this, and that's like that next level. And frequently, pretty much always, when we're doing a full cast production, we're also going to be incorporating music and sound effects. Those can also come in, you know, especially music. Many authors will like to have music, say, in opening and closing credits and such. And so there's a mixing process that's going to happen. How does that impact the mastering process? Well, it's actually not as... Because all of that's done in post-production, it's very controlled. Most of the time, the music's pre-recorded. We're not dealing with original tracks. Uh, Sound effects are almost always, as opposed to Foley, where they're actually created live, like old radio productions and motion pictures use what's called Foley artists that that produce these effects in real time. But we typically deal with libraries and stuff. So it's actually much easier, but it still has to be you have to take into account that it's there. And you also have to take into account, the, the, again, the fact that most of the product is going to be consumed by people listening to it in headphones. I know some people listen to audiobooks in cars and some people might listen to them on their speakers at home. But, and it's good to check your work in those environments too, just to see how it translates. 
but for the most part, we're mixing for headphones. I always like to check the work in, in, in a pair of headphones and see what's, what's jumping out. Is that sound effect really too loud for this? Because again, door slams, but I don't need to slam the door right in somebody's ear. I just have right. the idea <laughs> that a door slams. So, you know, it should be in, in relative, relative volume to what else is going on in the track. But I, I always make yeah. sure that, you know, when we're dealing with music and, and dialogue and sound effects, the dialogue has to be the, the predominant. Uh, Agree. Yeah. It has to be. And it, when they're doing motion pictures, uh, there are three positions on the console. There's three different engineers. One mixes music, one mixes sound effects, and the other mixes dialogue. At no time, almost no time, you know, the, the, the guy that's making the most money is the dialogue mixer. <laughs> Most important <laughs> in the production, it's different yeah. from music production. And our model for audiobook production is modeled much closer to what we see in motion picture production. Right. And I want to highlight something that you said about checking the mix on different, you know, in different ways. Because one of the things that can be challenging, I think, in the review of audio for authors is understanding the importance of that. I'm specifically now talking about ones that are mixed, you know, where we're we're trying to get a sense of is that sound effect or is that music appropriate at an appropriate level within the the mix overall? Because you can listen in your headphones and have one impression, you know, oh, maybe the that sound effect is too loud or you know, and then go into or, but if you're only listening on an, a a laptop speaker, then you're going to have a different impression and maybe you'll think it's too soft, but if you push it up, you know, it's going to be way too loud for the headphone listener, right? So it's an interesting thing. I guess I might liken it in some ways to um, creating different ways of thinking about these things, about websites. You know, websites, if you look at them in one browser or another browser or on a mobile or on an iPad or on a laptop, they're going to look different and you kind of need to check to see and to make sure that they're all working on those different platforms. Yes, things are going to play back differently. There's no way that things are going to sound the same in your car as they do in your headphones, as they do on your stereo speakers and so forth and so on. If people say, well, how many different things should I check it on? I say as many as you can think of. But mostly right. you want to make sure that you're, you're getting the, you always have to mix and master for your, your consumer. And you have to ask yourself, well, who, who's going to be buying this product and what are they more likely to be listening to it? And let's check, let's listen to it the way they would listen to it. But one of my favorite points to make about this is that whatever your playback system is, let, let's say you got a great set of speakers or a great set of headphones, that playback system's biggest strength can be your mix's biggest weakness. And I'll explain Let's say you got a pair of headphones and you love them because the bottom end sounds so good. God, it just sounds so rich and nice and cool. And I love these headphones for that because it just sounds so, it doesn't sound thin. I hate that. Okay. So now you've got it sounding nice and big and rich and full in these kind of bottom heavy headphones that you love so much. Now put that on a pair of car speakers. I don't mean the expensive kind that you had put in. But the kind that came, you know, the Delco speakers that came with it from the factory or whatever, those are going to be really thin sounding. And now you've got something 
that was artificially enhanced to, to make the bottom end sound good because that's, that's what the manufacturer of the headphones wanted to sell. And they're making the mix sound nice and full, but it really isn't. So in your headphones, it needs to sound a little more bottom heavy than you would like it to be. And then you take, right. play it on the car and go, no, I need to add a little bit more bass to that. And your headphones now it's starting to sound like, wow. So you wind up playing this back and forth game. You have to be really careful. What you're really looking for in a playback system is neutral. As neutral as you can get, car, car stereo speakers are pretty good for that because they're not, as long as you don't have, you know, some sort of external equalization on them, just flat like they, you know, like they are in default, they're, they're pretty average. Yeah. They're not bad to use. Uh, another one that's a really good choice is a real cheap boombox type speakers. Uh-huh. The cheap yeah. ones, not the big expensive ones that have the enhanced bass, but just the you know, uh, clock radios, those kind of things. If your mix or your production sounds good and professional and, and you listen to, we do what we call AB, which we listen to what we just did and then play it against something that someone else created. It's already on the radio or it's already on Amazon. We listen to that and see, well, how, how far off are we? If you do that with the system that I just described, very, very neutral, it will pretty well translate on just about anything that you put it in. Yeah. And just to not suddenly overwhelm authors with, oh, my gosh, I have to review this on, you know, a gazillion different devices. But you could certainly listen through earbuds or headphones and or headphones and then also go out to your car and let the Wi-Fi you know, uh, send it through the Bluetooth and, you know, listen to it that way for a bit. And Car is not Bluetooth compatible, burn it down to a CD right quick. Yeah, yeah. Used to spend a lot of time doing, you know, burning down to a CD and running out and listening to it in the car. Take it over to a friend's house. Listen to it on their headphones or in their car or on their playback system or whatever. Yeah. You don't have to go and buy anything. I think what people really come away from all of this with is, I was really doing a lot more than I need to. Uh-huh. Yeah. Really less is more. The less that you do to it, the more that can be done with it if needed later. Yeah. Just keep it simple. Yeah. And just also I think, you know, certainly to point out that like when we're working on a full cast project and and you're doing the mastering for that, you have that experience of knowing about where it needs to land so that the likelihood is that it's going to sound good on those many different listening devices. The problem that most people just coming into this uh, or, or just getting started, we listen to what we made. And, and this is natural. It's, it's no, I mean, I did the same thing years ago. You make something and you want to see, is it any good? Uh-huh. The only way that you know to listen to it, because you, you can have friends and family listen to it. It's hard to tell from the feedback that you might get from them. So you're always asking yourself, is this really any good? And so what do we do? We go and pull up something from our audiobook library, something on Audible, something on, you know, something that's already out there, something on iTunes or Spotify or whatever. And we listen to it. We go, well, mine doesn't, I get this all the time. Mine doesn't sound as loud. So they always want to turn it up. It's not going to. It shouldn't. It should come off a little duller, a little lower in volume. That's what mastering is for. It allows the mastering engineer to have what's called headroom, to have working room 
to bring up that which needs to be brought up to make it as loud as something else. If, if you have very, very little headroom, I'll go back to my camera analogy. If it's right in front of the lens, there's not a lot I can do about it. Back it off a little bit. Give me some space to work with. Let me, you know, and when I add EQ, when I add compression, when I add volume, it's going to change. And I need as much room as, as, I, can, as I can get from, from the narrator. That's the best way that I can explain it. It's just that I need some headroom. So if your mix or if, you, if your final files, if you listen to them and it sounds, well, that sounds pretty good, but the thing I'm listening to on Audible sounds louder and crisper and, and just fuller. It's like, well, then you're probably about right. It's always easier. To, I, I love my cooking analogy. It's always easier to add salt. Nothing you salt. <laughs> Once it's in, you can't take it out. <laughs> it's, once it's in the track, it's it's there, it's there forever. So yeah. yeah, just less is more. Keep it simple. Always be thinking of at every step of the production, I'm always thinking of the end. Where is it going to be in the end? How is this going to, to wind up? If you're not sure, there are tons of YouTube videos that can help you find out where the production should be, what's going to happen to it. You know, you can search these things on, on YouTube and find people all over the place that will explain the production process if you're not sure. If you need more detail and we're going into in this podcast and you know there's there's probably some uh, uh, some YouTubes that I love to use uh, YouTube links. Somebody asked me a question, I'll just send them a link. Say, check this out. This will explain yeah. it in greater detail yeah. than I can write in an email. Yeah. And I just want to also highlight one last thing before we wrap up, and that is, I actually mentioned this on my last episode as well that I did, and it's about how to listen, because we were talking about listening on the many different devices, but I would love to in keep encouraging authors that when you're listening to your audiobook, close your eyes, don't be following the text, actually just experience it the way that your listener will experience it, and you'll get a much better idea of where there are issues, because you'll hear them better because you're paying attention with your ears, not your eyes. And I think that our eyes are so often, just like with the movie frames, you know, we'll, we just bypass. This is part of the challenge in uh, text editing and proofreading, is that our brains will fix the grammar in a sentence without even noticing that it's wrong. And I've found like when I, I was just reviewing the audio for my own novel and I just kept my eyes closed the whole time. And then when something didn't sound right, that's when I stopped and looked at the text to see what happened there. But I, I think that there's um, either a fear that we're not going to be doing our job properly or that I'll miss something that I should be paying attention to. And, and so I just wanted to highlight that Good point. as well. As well, and it's in music production, the mix engineer never masters his own work or her own work, as the case may be. There's some great female engineers, but there's a reason for that, and it's called context. And and uh, once you've been listening to something for hours, you lose the ability to judge it objectively. And same in audiobook production. Once we've narrated something, that's why we use we outsource proofreading and, and editing in, in many cases when it's possible. And we haven't done that with mastering so much yet. It's very difficult to be that objective about something that you have recorded yourself because you tend to hear all of the flaws that you know to be there. You, 
hard to hear it first time. It's always important to remember that objectivity. And I think closing your eyes is a good way to do it. It's really, really difficult. When possible, I would recommend using someone else to at least review the work because they're going to hear it differently than you do. Yeah, and I was speaking specifically not for the narrators when they're first checking to make sure they did it right, you know, got the words right, but for the authors when you're listening to the finished files, you know, for your review to make sure that it it sounds right to you, that's the time to close your eyes and just experience it as a listener. Sure, see what jumps out because something might right. jumps out to you, it's going to jump out to a bunch of listeners as well, and it's at least worth bringing up Say, hey, I noticed, you know, in chapter three, right around the time that, you know, Bill makes his entrance, X, Y, Z happens. Are you noticing that too? So it's, it's really good to collaborate with others and yeah. get feedback. This is akin to listening to it on different, different playback systems. Right. Type monitoring what you're listening to. So the objectivity is, is really important too. And that's why we wind up farming out in many cases. I, I think it's a, maybe a little easier because you're typically dealing with a mono file. It's just got one thing on it. It's just got the audio. So it's a little, it's maybe a little easier to, to do mastering on that work that you engineered than it would be uh, either a multi-voice production or, you know, a multi-track audio production in music. Yeah. Well, I think we should wrap up. But Mike, I want to thank you so much for being with me. And also thank you so much for being part of the Pro Audio Voices team. We love having you on our team and working with you. So thank you. Thanks so much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for joining us for Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. Please take a moment to subscribe at audiobookconnection.com. The podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Learn more at proaudiovoices.com. Again, thanks for being with us, and please join us next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.